Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. The biggest secret of the best traders in the world is that they're just like everyone else. However, they've worked hard to learn the markets and discover what works and what doesn't. But how can you hear about these journeys and get in on the strategies and tactics they use? You can do it by listening to Chat with Traders. Here's your host, Aaron Fifield. What's going on, traders? I hope you're doing great and welcome to the podcast. This week, we're at episode 52, and I had the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Ernest Chan. While many traders in the quantitative arena will already be familiar with Ernie, I'll give just a quick 30-second intro, and then we'll get into the interview. So I guess you could say Ernie had somewhat of an unconventional introduction to trading. He started out on a research team at IBM using machine learning and artificial intelligence techniques teaching computers to understand human languages before joining a prop trading group. Today, Ernie has upwards of 15 years applying similar techniques to the domain of finance and trading, working with multiple prop firms and hedge funds across his career. And as of right now, Ernie is the managing member of QTS Capital Management. Just to top it off, Ernie has also written two books, Quantitative Trading and Algorithmic Trading, and he speaks at conferences regularly. Some of the topics we covered during this episode are diversification, capital allocation, generating strategy ideas, backtesting, and a whole lot more. And you can get a full recap on this episode at chatwithtraders.com forward slash 52. Uh, you can find everything there all in one place. All right, guys, let's do this. I'm your host, Aaron Firefield. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, and here is my guest from Toronto, Canada, Ernie Chan. Hey, Ernie, how's it going? Oh, I'm fine. Thanks uh, for uh, you know talking to me, Aaron. No trouble whatsoever. It's nice to be speaking with you. Thanks a million for doing this. I'm really keen to, to dig in and get some of your insight on how you've had such great success in markets. I've been looking forward to this. So, Let's begin by talking about how it all began for you. Firstly, you graduated with a PhD in physics. Where did you go from there? Well, I uh, uh, went to uh, IBM Research uh, to do some uh, uh, th something quite different from physics. 
uh, in the field of uh, really machine learning and artificial intelligence. So I spent, uh, uh, you know, about three years as a uh, uh, researcher there um, uh, before I move on to finance. Okay, and what were some of the tasks that you were working on there with your AI and machine learning at IBM? Well, the group uh, is um, uh, focused on uh, teaching the computer to understand human language in all of its manifestation, such as uh, machine translation, uh, such as uh, speech recognition, uh, such as um, uh, uh, natural language understanding, meaning that uh, understanding uh, you know how to respond to uh, a human inquiry, like uh, nowadays. Uh, you know, if you speak to uh, iPhone, Siri, they will do whatever you tell them to do. That's the part of uh, the research we did. And, um, uh, and also uh, how to retrieve relevant information in response to a human language query like what uh, Google uh, is doing today. So, but bear in mind that was uh, in 1994. At that time, Google did not exist and Apple does not have iPhone yet. So we, we were, uh, you know, in the quite early, uh, early stages of this, uh, this kind of uh, applications. But uh, uh, the interesting uh, thing is that the group uh, take a purely statistical approach. Uh, we, uh, you know, do not have too many any people actually that uh, really understand linguistics or anything. Everything is based on massive uh, statistical models uh, applied to uh, data. Okay, yeah. And I mean, I can imagine a lot has changed uh, since, since that time. So share with us, how did you actually get into trading? Well, after IBM, I uh, decided to um, uh, move to uh, live in New York City. Uh, you know, IBM, though, is a great organization, uh, has a research headquarter really uh, in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and uh, I uh, prefer a more urban uh, lifestyle. So I moved to Manhattan and pretty much the only kind of jobs in Manhattan at that time that are suitable for a um, person with my background would be in finance. So I uh, joined the uh, data mining AI group at uh, Morgan Stanley. And um, it's an internal consulting group that, uh, that consult for many different business, u- business units. However, uh, one of the business that we consult for are the trading desk of Morgan Stanley. And, at that, and so we have uh, given some opportunity to develop trading models uh, and, uh, you know, to see if they could be useful to some of our, our firm's uh, traders. So that's really my first introduction to uh, uh, trading. Uh, it's, uh, it's really a, a, from a research, uh, you know, a, a supplying uh, machine learning algorithms for trading uh, research, for trading strategies research. Okay, so up until that point, you hadn't really had any interest or desire to really become a trader. It was more just um, those were the jobs that were available at the time. Is that right? Uh, that's right. My interest was in uh, in machine learning and artificial intelligence. Uh, it's not uh, necessary in whatever domain that uh, it can be applied to. I'm more interested in the in the uh, the approach, the technique, rather than the subject matter. So whether the subject matter is uh, human language or financial data, it doesn't make too much difference to me. Okay, yeah, that's really interesting. That's actually something I was going to ask you about. So um, you've beat me to it. But um, is is that still the case for you? 
Well, I retain my interest in uh, in machine learning and artificial intelligence, uh, but um, uh, I am also, uh, you know, evidently after uh, 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 focusing on one domain, uh, which is uh, trading, for uh, about um, oh, how many years? That would be maybe about uh, more than fifteen, seventeen years. Uh, obviously, I'm now uh, a you know very interested in financial market per se. So, yes, my my interest has con- narrowed considerably to one domain, uh, which uh, which is uh, finance. But I'm still, of course, interested in the techniques of machine learning and um, AI, though not on its application to other fields uh, other than finance. Sure, sure. Okay. So following your position at Morgan Stanley, I mean, what was the next step uh, from there on- onwards? Well, the um, uh, the group in Morgan Stanley uh, sort of scattered uh, a, a little bit after I joined, named uh, because the main sponsor of the group uh, was hired away by Deutsche Bank to head up their global equities trading. Uh, he became a very senior executive. In, I mean, he was a very senior executive at uh, at Morgan Stanley. He was the head of the U.S. equity trading at Morgan. But at Deutsche Bank, he became the global head of equities trading. So, you know, it's a step up for him. But without this big sponsor behind our group, um, we are um, a little bit at a loss for finding clients. Um, so uh, some of our colleagues uh, decided to leave the firm and uh, go on to Credit Suisse and uh, started our own proprietary trading group. So uh, that's, uh, I was uh, asked to join them and I agreed. So, you know, we went off to uh, a pop trading group in Credit Suisse uh, to apply these techniques that we uh, we have been researching uh, all along. Okay, good one. Now, I usually ask this question and I'm not sure if um, it's quite so relevant to your background, but I'm going to ask it anyway and you can, you can give me your thoughts. So, let's say in the period of your first five years being involved with uh, financial markets, what were some of the greatest difficulties you encountered that, that really challenged you? Well, I mean, as uh, with many of the algorithmic trading models, the, the greatest difficulty is that, um, uh, you know, you, your, your model can, can, can look very good on, on a backtest basis, but uh, it is, uh, you know, very hard to know if it is actually going to perform well in, in practice. And, um, you know, I when I first applied these uh, techniques to trading, obviously I have I don't have a lot of uh, experience and intuition about financial markets, and so I approach it in a, a rather um, uh, theoretical or you can say mechanical manner. And it turns out that uh, actually almost every model that I and actually we produce uh, didn't work in uh, live trading. Uh, you know, it worked perfectly on in a backtest basis, but it's uh, completely, uh, you know, fail in, in the live trading. So that's uh, certainly a, a big challenge for us. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So, so pretty much what you're saying is that even if you do have the, uh, you know, the knowledge of machine learning and AI and, and those types of things, applying them to financial markets, it still is very beneficial to have an understanding of how the market operates. It's not just as black and white as that's, you know, a different data set that you're now working with. Yes, because the, uh, the at that time, at least, the, uh, the data set that is um, 
uh, for, 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 for financial markets are very uh, sparse compared to other sort of machine learning data sets. Um, you know, typically we would feed millions of articles into a machine learning system for it to te teach it to understand human language, for example, you know, literally millions. And uh, whereas for, um, uh, you know, financial data, if, especially if we are trading daily data, not high frequency trading, but, you know, daily data, there aren't uh, enough um, data to really uh, train the system properly. And so human intuition, I find, was necessary to really constrain the system so that uh, it can uh, result in sensible results, even with very limited data. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's really interesting. Now, Ernie, how would you describe your style of trading to anyone who is completely unfamiliar with your work? So, share with us maybe the frequency that you're trading, uh, what markets, and just a little bit um, of more insight to your quantitative um, approach. Well, our focus uh, is uh, really uh, in the uh, intraday trading, but not high frequency trading. Uh, big, uh, the reason for that particular time frame uh, is that um, if uh, it, it, it gives us a good enough sharp ratios and, uh, you know, and, and a good sharp ratio indicate a good statistical significance so that we know that uh, whatever result we are seeing is not pure luck. So there are enough trades to, to convince us that we are doing something uh, cor uh, correctly, not, not just uh, you know, random, random luck. Uh, but it is not high frequency trading because to go into high frequency trading requires a much um, higher investment in the infrastructure. Uh, that um, at our level of asset is not justified. So yeah, we focus on the uh, the, the intraday trading that holds for several hours um, at the you know on the average, um, and uh, we focus initially on forex because that's the most liquid market. Um, and um, and then later on, we added the futures models and then also f uh, stocks models. So uh, and now we uh, actually uh, dabble in options as well. Um, so we we are uh, you know constantly looking for new models. So and we do not restrict ourselves in terms of what markets we 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 can research and trade on. Okay, so trading such a wide range of markets. Do you find that the strategies you develop for each market are vastly different or is it sometimes the case that a strategy for stocks may also work effectively on futures? Uh, the strategies are vastly different. Um, uh, you know, we, we, I know that there are futures traders, for example, who believe that those, you can trade um, uh, Orange juice future the same way as you trade the gold futures and the same way that you can trade um, oil futures. Um, you know, if they can find such a model, all the power to them, I say, but we couldn't. So we have a separate model for every future. And uh, you might say, well, that sounds like overfitting to the particular future. Well, the results speak for itself. Um, you know, the model that we focus on each market has a very decent sharp ratio. And a decent return. So, and we have been running it for a while, uh, live, and um, and it will not work on any other market. It just work on that single market. So, for every practically for every single instrument, we have a separate model for it. 
Okay. And it, I mean, how do you deal with that when you come to uh, markets such as just the equities and, and stocks markets um, as well as options? I mean, or do you have... Uh, do your strategies operate on, you know, just a basket of stocks or are they still uh, individual strategies for individual stocks? Yes, stocks are different uh, because we typically run stocks in a market neutral strategy. So um, essentially a stock selection model. So we have uh, one model to select what stock to buy and sell every day. And, and so um, indeed the same selection model is applicable to all the stocks. Okay, sure. So running multiple strategies um, at any given time, in your opinion, what are the benefits of doing this? And could you give us an idea on how many uh, maybe different strategies you're running? We, we run over uh, seven uh, or, or eight strategies. Now, some of them are, have very little allocation. Some of them have a large allocation, so they're not equally uh, capitalized. Um, so uh, some of them are in an experimental stage, so they have a trivial allocation. Um, so the, the, the benefit, of course, is diversification. You know, uh, uh, you, you know, as a, a, a portfolio uh, are subject to many risks. There are uh, risks uh, due to, for example, if you're long on this portfolio, of course, it will be subject to a market risk. If you are um, market neutral, but um, uh, somehow uh, over, uh, overweighted on, let's say, one sector of stocks and underweighted in the other sector of stock, you know, so you will still have uh, uh, some factor risk. Um, and uh, even uh, if, um, and, and there are some other risks that uh, are not so apparent. So, for example, you have, um, uh, if you're running options, uh, uh, you know, portfolio, you might be, um, you may be, uh, uh, have a, a a negative vega, so you might be uh, sensitive to to uh, uh, volatility. So if volatility goes up, your portfolio will go down. Or you might be sub, uh, sensitive to interest rate. If interest rate goes up, your portfolio goes down. So um, you know every strategy has its sort of uh, sensitivity to a particular risk: volatility, interest rate, market risk, factor risk, whatnot. And uh, the goal of a well-balanced portfolio is that you want to neutralize any of this risk. So, you know, and you can't do that with just one strategy. You know, each strategy is going to have a, a soft spot and it's going to be vulnerable to particular risk. But if you're running multiple strategies, hopefully uh, their sensitivity neutralize each other. So a simple example is a long short portfolio, neutralize market list risk. If you are, you know, your long portfolio benefit from a, Increasing stock index, but the negative, the short portfolio will be hurt. But some of those two, the net of those two sides of the portfolio, um, you know, will have practically have no risk. So that's what they call it market neutral. It will, will not be affected by the movement of the market index. And the same uh, can be applied to any of these risk factors, whether it's volatility, interest rate, and so forth. And that's the goal of our, our, our portfolio is to be neutral to any or most of this risk factor. Now, of course, we are not that smart. We cannot, we, we, we really haven't figured out exactly, you know, under some weird circumstance, there's some risk that we have not neutralized. But some of the obvious risks we have eliminated because of diversification. Okay, yeah, that's, that's excellent. Now, let's imagine that an entry-level quant 
has created a trading system. They have a single strategy and are satisfied with the, the results from testing it. Is it wise for them to trade this without having other strategies to diversify? Uh, yes. I mean, you, you can't, uh, you know, uh, just uh, sit there and wait for 10 different strategies to, to all, all be ready to go before we start trading. So we, when we started our uh, fund, we only traded one strategy and obviously it was a very risky portfolio and uh, so we had a big drawdown. So that was, uh, uh, you know, unfortunate. But um, if we were to do it again, we would have lowered the leverage uh, a lot So until we get diversified. So yes, I mean, if you have just one strategy, you could also, you, you know, you should uh, start trading it, uh, but, uh, you know, one should not over-lever. Uh, one single strategy. Great. Yeah, I think that's really well said, Ernie. Now, I understand your strategies are designed to catch momentum and then some are also designed to um, capitalize on mean reverting. Do you have to decide which strategy types are best for the current market conditions by turning them on and off? Or is this something that's programmed into your algorithms? Uh, no, we we have not found a way to be able to um, predict, you know, in the next month uh, whether a momentum strategy will work or a reverting strategy will work. It is very easy, of course, to do it in hindsight. We say, oh, geez, this last month we should have just run the momentum strategy. <laughs> we should not have run the mean reverting strategy. But how do you tell next month whether you should do so? Uh, we have not found a model that can uh, do that. Other people uh, claim that they have uh, this kind of regime uh, shifting model and again, all the power to them, but we couldn't. So what we do is that um, we, uh, as I said, uh, we run multiple models all, all at the same time so that um, now some model will lose and some will gain. And hopefully um, the model that lose will lose less than the ones who get uh, that, uh, that gain. Right. Uh, that's a very delicate balance, of course. We don't always do it right. You know, so we do have some down months. We are not able to completely eliminate the risk so that we have uh, up months you know, every month. That would be wonderful, but you know, we, we didn't get to that perfection yet. Um, but so far, it, it has been the case that um, indeed most months are positive and the down months are down much less. Uh, well, not much less, but less than the up months are up. So they, we did not suffer big drawdown in a well-balanced uh, fund portfolio. And uh, so, you know, it's, it seems that the pro approach at least worked to a decent extent. Right. So with that being said, are there any discretionary elements to your trading style? Well, there is some discretion element in terms of the allocation to the uh, particular strategy. And the, the reason for that is that we constantly, um, you know, uh, 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 some of our strategies are lucky enough to have worked from day one. And although they had been drawdown, never stopped working. So, you know, we've been trading it for more than four years and, you know, they form the backbone of our fund. But there are other strategies that um, we started and it might work for a year and then it become quite uh, weak and start to lose money month after month. Uh, and so, so we need to um, reduce their leverage. Um, well, in that sense, it's somewhat systematically. We do reduce them based on their, their loss. 
Um, but um, there are other strategies that we just created is, is a new strategy. Now, with a new strategy, you, you never know how much to allocate to it. Uh, I would say that it is imprudent to, to immediately allocate, you know, just based on back test, oh, this strategy has a sharp ratio of two, let's allocate it based on the back test sharp ratio. I think that would be imprudent because no matter how well your back test is, there is always the possibility of A, overfitting, uh, you know, data snooping bias, and B, regime change. Uh, so the light and also thirdly, you don't know exactly what the market impact is until you actually trade it uh, in substantial size. So um, therefore, it, when you, we start a new strategy, we are always starting it at a very low uh, leverage and gradually increase it to the proper allocation. And that process is discretionary because I don't see that there is a... Um, you know, that's no way to, to sort of systematically increase a new strategy because whatever systematic way that you can count on is based on backtest. And the backtest already says that this is great. So, but the point is that we don't believe the backtest. Since we don't completely believe the backtest, uh, there's necessary discretion involved in, in um, you know, how fast you increase the, uh, uh, the leverage. So that part, I would say that capital allocation in the, in the face of a dynamically changing strategy pool, some of them are dying, some of them are getting born, uh, that process is, um, has a discretionary element to it. Okay, that's, that's really great. Um, now, I'm really keen to ask you more about backtesting actually in a little bit, but um, right now I'd like to ask you a couple questions about some of the less obvious differences between discretionary and quantitative trading. So let me ask you this. How does profit distribution differ between discretionary and quantitative strategies? And the reason I ask that is because some discretionary traders will say their profits are quite lumpy. So they'll say that 90% of their profits come from 10% of their trades. Do you find this is also the case with quant trading strategies or is the equity curve somewhat smoother? Well, I think that the, um, the difference is not between uh, discretionary trading or algorithmic trading. The difference is between mean reverting and momentum strategies. Uh, typically, the characteristic of a mean reverting strategy is that the profit are, are of every trade is very similar. And uh, almost every trade will be profitable, except there are a few trades, very rare trades, that will lose maybe 10 times uh, the typical profit of a trade. That's uh, the characteristic of a, of a mean referring strategy, whether you're running a mean referring strategy by uh, discretion or by um, uh, algorithm, uh, it would have the same characteristic. Um, the opposite occur for momentum strategy. Uh, momentum strategy is such that uh, a lot of trades are, will not be successful. In fact, they will lose a little bit of money. Uh, but once in a while, there will be uh, a, a rare trade that will make uh, 10 times as or maybe more uh, a profit than the typical losses of a momentum trade. So, uh, yeah, I would say that the sort of the profile of uh, profits that you describe are really, um, I would say, differentiated by this, the, the whether it's mean reversion or momentum. Uh, now, discretion or not, 
I, I think that the, um, the problem with discretion, now there's pros and cons to discretion versus logarithmic. The good thing about discretion, discretionary trading, is that you can tick into the context of you know, macroeconomics. There are a lot of variables that you can take into context, like uh, uh, um, did a uh, major um, uh, earthquake just happen? Did a, uh, uh, some uh, major government decision just being made in some corner of the world? Your model could not possibly take into account all those um, rare events, but a human can. So, you know, a human can say, well, uh, you know, today obviously uh, there's a, um, maybe a major... Uh, um, default that uh, is is looming over Greece, and uh, we don't want to trade the euro bonds or something like that. Then that would be perfectly sensible, uh, you know, a sensible discretionary decision. But your model would would never be able to make that sort of decision. So that's the good thing about um, discretion trading that you know you can take into the context and particularly rare events. But the problem with discretionary trading is that uh, you know a human brain can focus on only very few things at a time, and you know research has shown that uh, multitasking doesn't work. If, if you do multitasking, all you get is the degraded performance in every task that uh, we do. So as a discretionary trader, very un you're unlikely to be able to manage more than a small handful of strategies, and as a result, the the equity curve will not be terribly smooth, and you know, if, unless you're just running a very high high frequency mean voting strategy, but because of the lack of diversification um, for a discretionary trader, it is very likely that your your sharp ratio will not be as high as a uh, well diversified algorithmic trading portfolio, um, and and indeed we will look kind of rocket the uh, the equity curve. And that might be. Um, why one might see a different shape of the equity curve, you know, being being not as smooth as algorithmic trading is simply a consequence of uh, diverse, the lack of diversification in the discretionary case. I challenge a discretionary trader to run, you know, seven uh, day trading strategies simultaneously. I I don't know how they would be able to do that. Yeah, that's very well said, Ernie. Um, thank you for you know explaining that. You mentioned in there that um, while you can't take all news and macro events into consideration, do you take some of these, uh, you know, news events and sentiment into consideration when uh, developing your your strategies, or is it purely always just based off price? Well, the um, at at the, at the, at this point, we um, in, in developing the strategy, we have not been able to take into account. Uh, the news, but um, certainly nowadays there are more and more vendors of new sentiment data. We may be able to incorporate that going forward. But um, even though the back test does not incorporate new sentiment, there are some exceptional events that we would take into account uh, when we are trading the model live. So there are some rare occasions that we would indeed override a model in the sense that we will shut down the model because we don't believe that the model has incorporated those events um, that uh, is coming up. And uh, so from, from a risk management point of view, we will not trade um, because of those, those events, such as um, you know, natural disaster or uh, major economic event. So um, yeah, that's another place where discretion would come in, is that uh, because our, our model does not have 
news data as input, um, we feel that it is prudent to sometimes uh, override the model and not trade because of some exceptional news. Okay, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com chat to learn more. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Uh, now let's talk a little bit about um, generating ideas. So I mean, you probably get asked this quite regularly, but what's your process of finding ideas for viable trading strategies? Well, um, you know, I'm a, a sort of a vacuum cleaner of ideas out there in the public. And, you know, I, I uh, have a, a, follow a number of uh, Twitter accounts. And uh, these are all accounts which uh, regularly on a daily basis um, publish the, uh, the uh, headlines of new articles on, on, on finance and trading. So I would always make note of those that look interesting. And I will read them when I have time and, uh, you know, and I get ideas from some of them. Uh, I also, of course, uh, keep um, always uh, uh, look for books on, on trading uh, from fairly elementary books to uh, books that uh, stands with uh, equations uh, or, or full spectrum of them. Uh, I, you know, regularly consume them and, um, and then um, also you know, in the course of live trading, oftentimes you will observe phenomenon uh, from your P&L. You know, and that's one thing that really uh, distinguishes between a, a researcher that just sit in the office and, and research and look at papers and look at data uh, versus a, a trader who are actually um, watching the market uh, in real time because the the information sometimes you, you your your brain would capture information when real money is at stake that you would never be able to capture if it's just backtesting. So I often would get inspirations from some particularly uh, unusual P and L pattern during the day that can be uh, that can be utilized for uh, developing new trading models. Uh, so so yeah so you know it's from a variety of sources that uh, these trading ideas come from. Yeah, that's a really great point. I'm, I'm glad you uh, highlighted that. How do you feel about academic research on, on market studies and that type of thing? I mean, I think you kind of mentioned it there, but I mean, I mean, one of the things I've kind of heard 
about academic research is one of the precautions that you should take is that it's not necessarily realistic to um, replicate those results had it been you know taken in a live market. I mean, is are there any pre- precautions that um, traders should be aware of if reading academic research? Yes. Um Obviously, uh, you know, one should not just uh, assume that these uh, research are uh, going to be profitable. And there are many reasons they may not turn out to be profitable. Some of them are because they have been uh, overfitted to pass data. Uh, others are because, uh, you know, they are, um, have not taken into account transaction cost. And yet others are because the data they use are just uh, not good enough. So, um you know, so so yes, mo- most research, you know, after you read it and you try to replicate it, uh, it might not work after you have fixed some of the deficiencies. However, uh, at the same time, you know, once in a while you will uh, come across some ideas uh, that uh, that work, and uh, even after backtesting, and you know, it still stand up to to the uh, to the scrutiny. And uh, you know, and you trade it live, and it continues to work. And you know, we have we have been trading one such a strategy, so that's proved that uh, occasionally academic research does work. Now, one one important point that I have made in my books is that uh, even though a, a strategy that comes from the uh, academic research might work, it usually does not work exactly as described in the paper. So, you know, no matter what, you know, uh, uh, source of ideas we, we uh, generate our trading strategy from, um, it does not mean that uh, we are just, com- you know, f- uh, like a slavishly copy what we have read. Uh, it always means that we have to make major modification. So anything we read, in the public domain is to be treated as an inspiration only. It is not to be treated as a recipe. And I've made it very uh, clear in my book also that I have described many strategies and there are occasionally um, a reader would uh, come back uh, in email and say, hey, this strategy, um, you know, after a couple of years doesn't work anymore. Um, you know, what's going on? I say, well, First of all, I'm trading that strategy live and it continues to work. Why is it that it worked for me but not for you? The reason is that I make modifications to the strategy that is slightly different from what I wrote in the book. So, um, And I encourage any reader to do the same. Um, and I, in fact, urge them, make sure that they don't copy the strategies that anybody, not me, not anybody, not even a uh, academic uh, researcher's strategy in its entirety, because obviously very few people will be will be foolish enough to just you know disclose one hundred percent of their trade secrets in in, in domain. Not even an academic researcher. Uh, I, I can tell you that I've corresponded with many academic researchers, and if they are um, not only just doing pure academic research, but they may have an interest in a hedge fund or maybe they are trading for their own account. There are some details that they have withheld from the model, and so I, and so did I. So it is very critical not to com- just 
safely follow a strategy that as written on the net or on the book or in the paper, but always make sure that you have modified it to your own taste and scrutinize it in you know using your own experience and and your own uh, criteria before you you trade it. Okay, so you mentioned in there that you have made modifications to your strategies over time. What's an example of like making a modification? Like when do you decide um, is it's a good time to make a modification? And I mean, is there a difference between just making a modification and dropping that strategy to because it no longer works? Like how do you know when to make a modification and when to stop trading the strategy? Well, there are occasions where um, it is quite, uh, you know, obvious what is causing the strategy to, uh, to, to lose money. Um, for example, um, you might be running a Bollinger Band strategy for mean reversion, and you might find that uh, this, the, uh, the strategy lose money when the volatility uh, suddenly uh, increase so that uh, you know what the previous uh, width of the Bollinger Band is too narrow to 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 be appropriate for the current high volatility regime. Well, you know, one change you can make is to make your Bollinger Band perhaps the look back shorter, uh, you know, so that it's more responsive to the volatility. Or another way might be to impose a minimum. Uh, volatility level for your Bollinger Band instead of just uh, safely follow what's the path. You say, you know, if the path has very low volatility, you you would not follow it. You would uh, still be, um, you know, setting it at least at this width. That would be an example of how you would modify your, your strategy um, to, to deal with a particular problem. And, um, of course, after you know you had uh, this bright bright idea how to um, improve that strategy, add some feature or make some modification, you can also you want we we must also backtest this new modification right It's not just saying that oh, I believe that this fix is going to do it. Well, of course, we have to go back and backtest it to see um, if that modification does improve things. Now, oftentimes what it happens is that it doesn't necessarily improve the return, but it might decrease the risk. And that might be an acceptable um, improvement. You know, just lowering the risk is oftentimes uh, a, uh, you know, a great thing. You don't have to really improve the return. Sure. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's a really great point. And... While we're on the subject of backtesting, I mean, let's let's just dive into it. So, what are some of the major pitfalls traders can experience when backtesting? Well, one of the major pitfalls is uh, data snooping bias, uh, as we ourselves have experienced in the early days many times. Um, the model is just simply too complicated, and so it just fit the historical data very well, um, but it has no predictive power. As that's usually the main problem uh, with, uh, with backtesting. Uh, and the cure for that is uh, typically to uh, make sure that the model is simple enough and it actually sensible, not just produce good result, but you know sometimes you have to make sure that it's, uh, it's sensible. It, you know it, 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 conf- it is capturing certain market phenomenon that uh, is 
perhaps uh, well discussed elsewhere, so that it sort of inc- increase the confidence that the model is picking up the signal, not the noise. Yeah, and I mean, I guess that kind of comes back to what we hit on a little bit earlier about how it's um, you know important to have an understanding of how the market operates as well as um, you know the programming knowledge. So, um, let me ask you: to what extent can a backtest tell you the likelihood of a strategy producing similar results in the future? Like, how much do you rely on a backtest? Well, we we really uh, regard a backtest as a, some sort of a hypothesis, re- re- rejection of a null hypothesis in, in statistical testing. In other words, uh, we want the backtest um, to at least not produce negative results because if it produces negative results, you know, we pretty much reject the strategy. We don't have to spend further uh, time and money on it. But if the strategy uh, has a produce a decent sharp ratio and sharp ratio itself is pretty much a um, uh, a significance test the higher the sharp ratio the more statistical significance the strategy is so if a strategy has a high uh, positive sharp ratio it really means that we are much more um, you know confident in the in 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 that back test doesn't mean that it will also work in live testing but a high sharp ratio back test enables us to find out if it is overfitted very quickly in live trading. Because if you have a, a strategy that, for example, has an astronomical sharp ratio, 10, let's say, practically, you know, every day, if not, you know, if, if every week, if not every day, it would be profitable. If you have a sharp ratio 10, that's pretty much guaranteed that every week you will be profitable and practically every day you will be profitable. So if you run the strategy live for just a, one month, you can immediately tell whether your backtest is valid or not. Because the backtest says that practically every day you're going to be profitable and then you run it for a month and you find that it has a drawdown of three weeks. Well, that, that immediately tells you that uh, your backtest is not completely realistic. What's your guide for factoring in transaction costs to your back test? So when I say transaction costs, we're obviously referring to like slippage, uh, commissions, and market impact, that type of thing. How do you factor that into your back test? Well, um, one main source of the, uh, the transaction cost is the, the bid ask spread. And uh, to, to realistically model that, one need to use you know, high-frequency quote data to backtest. And that's explained in one of my blog articles um, also. Why sometimes low-frequency strategy backtesting requires high-frequency data because you need the bid-ask spread in order to um, get the bid and ask quotes to, to, to figure out exactly what price you're going to execute at. Uh, just having trade prices doesn't help uh, that kind of uh, transaction cost model. Uh, beyond that, you have... We have to look at the um, the top of book quote size. A lot of the strategy, particularly high frequency strategy, that look very good on paper and particularly favored by academic researcher, you will find that it doesn't work beyond the top of book, and uh, that you know it assumes that uh, uh, if you are trading just one hundred shares, 
this this model indeed is very profitable. But once you uh, intend to execute ten, uh, you know, one thousand shares or ten thousand shares, uh, this strategy will be completely gone. Uh, it will completely uh, fall apart because um, you know when you have to take more than the top of book quotes and and lose more money from, from you know to 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 take the deeper into the book, uh, the backtest will show that it won't work. So that's. Um, so you know, not only do you need the, the quote price, but you also need to know the quote size in some of these uh, backtests. And then, not to mention, um, there are even more problematic issues such as um, um, you know market impact. Um, you know, once you take the top of book liquidity, how fast the liquidity replenishes itself, or if you put out a limit order there that is a substantial size, is it going to affect the order book? These issues are really in the domain of high frequency trading. Even though you may not be a high frequency trader, but if you, you know, let's say you're a discretionary trader and you 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 intend to hold for at least a couple of um, hours this uh, this position, but if you put a order into the order book that is, you know, much larger than the typical order size quote size you are going to affect the order book and you are going to have a, um, a you know, incurred opportunity cost. You're going to, 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 to affect things. And that kind of modeling uh, nowadays being conducted a, a lot of times by um, high frequency trading research. And there are a lot of very complicated mathematical models coming out to, to model that kind of process. But, um, uh, you know, but that's, that's what I'm saying. This is, this is the kind of... Um, Transaction cost that's more, much more difficult to deal with. You know, opportunity cost and and the the, the effect of on the order book because of your limit order. But that's I don't claim that we have a grasp on it. But I understand that that this is a field of active academic research. Okay, sure. So let's let's just do a couple more questions and then we'll probably um, start to wind things down. What are some of the common misconceptions people may have around quantitative trading? Misconceptions. Um, well, okay. So, so here's an example. Let me let me ask you this: Is quantitative trading just for an elite few who are math wizards, or do you honestly believe it's an angle that can be implemented by anyone willing to put in the work? I I do believe that uh, it is suitable for practically anybody um, who is willing to at least learn how to use an Excel spreadsheet. Um, I, I have collaborated with some very successful traders before that indeed uh, have no programming skills except programming a Excel spreadsheet. Uh, not naturally, they are not doing high frequency trading. They are doing trading that you know enter a position every once a day, but that doesn't mean it's not quantitative. Quantitative trading could could be a very slow uh, trading. Could be could be uh, holding a position for. Th- one quarter or one year, that could still be quantitative trading. So one does not need to be a math whiz and certainly does not need to be a a programming computer whiz in order to do quantitative trading. All one needs to do is to be able to gather data and backtest it, no matter what tool you use to backtest. It could be as simple as Excel spreadsheet. Okay, so a trader who wants to get started in quantitative trading or really wants to dive deeper into the subject and, um, you know, give it a real shot, where should they start? 
I would suggest that um, they should start from back trying to backtest some of the simplest strategies that they 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 know about or they read about in any sort of trading magazine or blog or uh, books. And there are many of them. I've seen some that are really simple. Uh, you know, I, I've read a lot of trading books where the strategies are, 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 are extremely simple. You know, such as um, sell on the first of May and buy the index. Uh, you know, at the end of October. You know, that how can how can it be simpler than that? Uh, but that's a start. And um, or some strategies such as saying that we should always buy when the price drop below the ten day. Um, moving average and sell when it's above the 10-day moving average, something like that, that can be quite readily backtested in, in, in an Excel spreadsheet. And once you gain confidence in your backtest method, you might want to next learn a simple trade um, programming language. You know, I, I even though I said that, yes, it's possible to start as a quantitative trader by using Excel only, but that doesn't mean that's the optimal state of affairs. Um, to improve your um, uh, ability as a quantitative trader to, to sort of uh, uh, expand your, the repertoire of your strategies, one should learn, indeed learn a better programming language than uh, Excel. Namely, and I, I, I always recommend one of three languages, Python, R, and MATLAB. So. Um, so that's the next step. Once you have some confidence in backtesting using Excel, well, start to learn the programming language to, to, so that you can backtest a wider variety of strategies, especially intraday strategies. Okay. Yeah, that's a really great answer, Ernie. And just on the languages there, uh, so you mentioned MATLAB, Python, or R. How do you feel about um, languages such as um, TradeStation's Easy Language? What's the pros and cons of going in the direction of more of an open source language, even though I know you have to do pay for um, MATLAB to use that, uh, but Python and R are you know, both open source languages. How do you feel about comparing those to more of a, I don't know, you could probably call it a proprietary language like TradeStation's Easy Language. What are the pros and cons there? Well, the pro of using a language that a brokerage uh, trading platform provides is that it can be very easily um, uh, turned into a live trading system. So you can backtest and trade live using exactly the same code and just flip a switch and it will generate real-time orders. So that's very convenient. The problem is that if you want to switch brokerage, all the script that you've written before, of course, doesn't work anymore. You, if you want to switch to interact brokers, your easy language script will have no use and you have to start from scratch. Uh, and another problem with those uh, brokerage languages is that they tend to be uh, rather limiting. They are not designed to uh, encompass, so, so it's quick, very uh, extreme example. Let's say you want to build a neural network to generate trading signals. I challenge you to do that with easy language. It's just not possible. I don't believe it's possible because um, if you want to build a neural network from scratch, it will probably take months. And maybe even months won't do it because you, there will be many bugs unless you're an expert in, in, in building machine learning languages. 
for uh, a MATLAB trader or a Python trader or a um, R trader, we would not be building a neural network from scratch. We would be using a neural network library that is ready-made in order to generate training signals. Uh, so that shows you the flexibility that is inherent in one of these uh, standard languages. Whereas, you know, if you want to use the same new, la new language, neural network program in easy language, well, you have to wait until TradeStation develop it for easy language, which might be never. All right, Ernie. Well, thanks for summing that up. Now, you've got two published books. Uh, one is Quantitative Trading and the second is called Algorithmic Trading. What can readers expect to learn from reading your two books here? Well, <clears throat> I think these two, the first book particularly um, answers some of the questions you raised earlier about how to get started in quantitative trading. You know, as, let's say you are a discretionary trader or maybe you never traded before even. You know, maybe someone is a new graduate or came from a different business. Let's say they are an accountant and wanted to get into uh, trading. Um, as a hobby or, or, or as a full-time job. Well, that, the first book is really geared for that uh, type of people. Um, it really starts from the basics. The second book is um, more uh, of a uh, more focus and perhaps go into some of the trading strategy in more depth. And some of the techniques are also more complicated. Things like uh, common filter, um, the uh, vector auto regression, uh, vector error correction models, um, this sort of uh, uh, stuff, or uh, you know, maybe a bit off-putting to a complete novice in trading, uh, but uh, they would be useful to someone who has traded uh, in a you know in a systematic manner for a while, but would like to learn newer techniques. So that's what the second book is about: is really introducing something a bit more. Uh, detail and more focused and more complicated to the traders who already have been um, you know, doing some quantitative trading already. Okay, yeah, and I mean both those books are definitely on my list to read and I hope to get stuck into those very soon. So I'll link to those in the show notes at chatwithtraders.com. Uh, Ernie, where can listeners go to find out more about you and where can they connect with you? Well, I'm, I, I run a blog, um, epchen.blogspot.com, uh, and uh, you know it, I, it's uh, open to comments. Uh, anybody can comment on it, and I uh, try to answer them uh, very, uh, you know, very rapidly uh, to any any uh, questions. Uh, I uh, have, you know, also, uh, you know, and and you know, I, I have been used to updating the blog with new articles more frequently than now, but now I'm writing a new book, so I don't have much time uh, to, to update it. So, But despite not having a new article published every month, it doesn't mean that I don't answer the comments that uh, readers might want to post on the blog. So that's certainly a great venue. Uh, the other one um, is that um, uh, on my uh, website, epchan.com, um, I... Uh, listed my email and a lot of uh, readers are uh, communicate with me just by uh, emailing me. So that's, I, I, you know, sometimes when a reader asks me questions that are generic, I would direct them to the blog because I like to answer a question so that many people can benefit at the same time. But other times if they just want to uh, ask for advice on a particular situation that they have, uh, certainly you know, feel free to email me directly. 
And um, so, yeah, and then also, of course, I run courses uh, online and off. And, um, you know, some of the people uh, who have read my blog and books would come to these seminars and uh, we could have a real-time conversation as well. Excellent. Yeah, well, I'll link to um, both your blog and your website in the show notes also. Um, so, yeah, I definitely encourage um, listeners to head on over and check out those links. Uh, really great resources there. And, Ernie, you're also on Twitter, I believe. Oh, yes. What's your yes. handle? That, that's, that's right. Uh, yeah, my, in my blog, I oftentimes include my uh, Twitter feed. And I don't tweet very often. I don't want to... Uh, you know, uh, burden my, our followers with too many uh, irrelevant information. But um, I do treat once in a while when I see some interesting information out there. Um, so yeah, feel free to follow. Okay, and what's your what's your Twitter handle? Uh, Chen Yip, C H A N E P. Okay, good one. And you mentioned you've got a new book coming out. When can we expect that? Well, that should be out. Uh, well, it usually take a year to write a book, and I just started uh, very recently. So, uh, and then uh, you know it will go through uh, editing and reviewing, and then uh, production and marketing. So, <laughs> we probably should see it uh, in the first quarter of two thousand and seventeen. Very cool. And, and what's it about? Is it a carry on from your last two? Uh, yes, the topics um, will be largely uh, different from before. Uh, it will, following the second book, it will go into techniques that I have not discussed before. For example, um, machine learning techniques. Um, for example, uh, options uh, uh, techniques, trading options, which I have not touched on before, and so forth. So it will be you know, a bit more advanced techniques than what I've discussed uh, before. And also, however, I will um, just sort of look back into some of the strategies that I have discussed in the first two books and see how they did, um, you know, sort of a uh, you know, post-mortem in some sense for some of the strategies <laughs> who, who died, you know, what caused death. And hopefully we'll find some that didn't die either. <laughs> yeah, that sounds really good. And um, I'm sure many people are eager to get their hands on that. So, Ernie, thank you very much for doing this. I really appreciate you taking the time. It was it was a lot of fun speaking with you. And I mean, I sure, sure learned a lot. I'm sure the listeners did too. So, yeah, big thanks for doing this. And uh, let's speak again soon. Great, great. I enjoy um, talking to you too. So, um, have a good night. All right. Awesome. Thank you, Ernie. You've come to the end of this episode of Chat with Traders. But don't worry, more great episodes are on the way. To stay updated with each great new episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, and we'd love it if you leave us a rating and review. We'll see you next time on Chat with Traders.